Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 436 with Joseph Regal. Joseph is talking about life hacking, and he's done a whole lot more research on the topic than your average listicles. You'll learn one, the question you need to ask when optimizing your life, two, why life hacks should be taken in moderation, and three, how to use your own money to hack your motivation. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP436. Now here's Joseph's story. Joseph writes and teaches about digital communication and online communities. He's an associate professor of communication studies at Northeastern University. He's also served as a fellow and faculty associate at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard. His doctoral dissertation was on the history and collaborative culture of Wikipedia. Joseph has appeared in numerous media outlets, including The Economist and The New York Times. So thanks to Joseph for spending some time with us and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Here is Joseph. Joseph, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm excited to dig into your stuff. And I'd love to start with you sharing a little bit of how you came to adopt the practice of Japanese techniques of t-shirt folding. What's the scoop here? I came by way of YouTube. Uh, I'm a bit of a sponge. I watch a lot of YouTube channels. I read a lot of blogs and whatnot. And I saw that there was this particular technique for folding t-shirts. And I can't say it verbally. If uh, your listeners want to check it out, you can Google Japanese t-shirt. But it's very nice. You just kind of pinch two parts of the shirt and you do a little flick of the wrist and then bam, it's folded. And it's it's a trivial sort of thing. It doesn't really save me much time, but if, I think the thing I enjoy about it is I don't really enjoy folding laundry. And so this gives me a little practice, a little technique that I can 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 improve upon that I can hone as I'm folding my laundry. So that gives me something to do. Yeah, that, that is nice. And it sort of makes you feel like there's some craftsmanship involved. And I believe this Japanese t-shirt folding practice is different than what Marie Kondo is advocating as I looked at your reference video. Is that fair to say? It is. She also has some great ideas. She, I don't know if she calls it vertical folding, but basically if you have a lot of t-shirts, or maybe we use this with the hand towels in our kitchen, instead of piling all the hand towels on top of one another, you arrange them side by side so you can see your whole gamut of, of things that you want to select from. And that's a very handy tip as well. And we use that in our kitchen. Well, and I like in particular 
the ability to not have to make one hand into a levitating shelf, you know, to take the things that are up above it and the other hand to grab the thing that is now on the new top. And then things get a little bit disjointed along the way. So I'm right with you. Well, it's funny. We're already talking about it. Um, <laughs> you know, you've got a book. It's called Hacking Life. And I'm quite intrigued by your premises and your discoveries. So maybe you can start us off by sharing what was one of the most striking and surprising discoveries you made when putting this together? Well, in the book, I'm looking at life hackers and all the domains of life that they apply this hacking ethos to. So it includes things like motivation, time management, productivity, health, material possessions. And when I got to relationships, I was looking at various types of people who use various tips and tricks for seduction, pickup artistry, oh, for managing their marriage, uh, the negotiation part of a relationship, as well as people just going online like OkCupid okay, and trying to figure out how to get themselves to be able to be matched with people that they might like. And uh, there was a a Wired article about this one hacker who hacked OkCupid okay, and he created fake profiles and he downloaded a bunch of information and he kind of figured out the sort of women that he would be attracted to and the sort of questions that they were interested in. And he ended up calling it a success and he published a self-help book about how to hack OkCupid okay and he went on 88 dates. And when I talk about that with students, they're like, that doesn't sound very successful. But I teach mm -hmm. in communication studies and most of my students are women. Uh, and they don't, when they hack dating, they also add a filtration mechanism interestingly enough, so they don't have to go out with bozos and boneheads. And then I came across someone else, an, another engineer who went on 150 dates in four months. Hmm. And he spoke about, it was so tempting in this age when we have all this technology and choice available to us to try one more date, to get one more data point, to figure out like who that perfect person would be. And that's then leading me into some of the downsides, I think, in approaching life this way. I'm very hackery myself. Uh, I think we can learn a lot. There's a lot of handy tips and tricks, and it can even help us craft some meaning for our lives. But there are some excesses. Intriguing. All right. Well, I want to talk about some of your hackeriness, <laughs> if that's a word, as well as, you know, some of the pros and cons. But maybe just to make sure from a, a language standpoint, we're on the same page. What makes a life hack a life hack per se? Mm -hmm. Well, the term hack goes back a surprisingly far amount of time. Uh, it emerged at MIT at their Tech Model Railroad Club. So that was a very geeky early electronics club at MIT in the late 1950s. And hacker culture emerged out of that. And they started accumulating a fair amount of jargon back then. And they put out a dictionary in 1959. And they said a hacker is the person who avoids the standard solution. Okay. More recently, the founder of lifehacker.com, Gina Trapani, she wrote that as a computer engineer type of person, um, she thinks about repro reprogramming the tasks of her life as she would a program. And she, her goal is to optimize them, to make them a little faster and a little more efficient. So the idea of life hacking spans the mundane it includes things like tying your shoelaces or folding your shirt, but it goes up to what I call meaning hacking, trying to find contentment in a life of uncertainty and loss. But all of these entail uh, 
an appreciation of systems and employment of systems, maybe trying to figure out how to exploit those systems to bend the rules so that you can be a little more efficient. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I mean, that sounds great to me. What are some of the downsides you're unearthing here? Well, what I wanted to do in this book is not pillarize life hacking. And, and people do sometimes, particularly cultural critics and academics, you know, they hold their nose when it comes to self-help. And I think life hacking is a part of self-help. And there's plenty of shade that people can throw at life hacking as well. But I didn't want to do that because, as I said, I'm geeky myself. Uh, but what I wanted to do was then draw some distinctions. So let's not throw life hacking out altogether. Let's figure out are there ethical life hacks and less ethical life hacks? Are there, are there different types of hacking? And I call them nominal and optimal hacking. And I think in this case, uh, optimal hacking certainly has some excesses entailed. So you might optimize the wrong thing. So the example that I spoke of, of that the dates. hacker who went on 150 dates, I think he was optimizing for the wrong thing. He got fixated on the dates rather than the starting of a relationship. Gotcha. And when you approach life as a system that can be optimized, you do have the tendency to sometimes fall into this trap of what I call naive optimization. Oh. <laughs> So these are great distinctions I'm wrapping my brain around here. So I got optimal hacking where we're seeking to optimize something. In that one case, it was optimizing such that he could get a bunch of dates. And what's nominal hacking? Nominal hacking is an engineering term. And I could have used the word normal, but I didn't for various reasons because that's loaded as well. But it's the idea that you're good enough. And so, for example, I spoke to lots of folks in the quantified self movement and life hackers who might want to lose a little bit of weight or who have migraines. And so they're not trying to like boost their brains. Some life hackers and biohackers take nootropics that supposedly make them smarter. That's how Tim Ferriss actually got his start selling a nootropic online. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're just trying to get back to a good enough sort of state. And I can appreciate that certainly because if people take some risks there, you know, they're doing it for a particular reason. But when people get too far down the line of optimizing, sometimes they're putting themselves at risk for a very marginal gain. So for example, one of the people I speak of is Seth Roberts, and he was very uh, big in the quantified self movement when that started. And the quantified self movement is just like the number measurement uh, fixated wing of life hackers. And he came up with, well, he discovered for himself that eating half a stick of butter every day made him a little bit faster. Faster running, thinking. Thinking. Mm -hmm. And so he had a little program on his computer and it would give him little math puzzles and he would respond to them as quickly as he could and he would chart and measure his response times and accuracy and he would track that over the days so he could see when he was a little bit faster or when he was a little bit slower. And he originally had started eating a large amount of pig fat every day to help with his sleep because he discovered that helping by way of accident. But then eating pig fat every day was difficult because you can't really carry it around with you. But he discovered if he ate half a stick of butter, you can get butter even when you're out at a restaurant. Uh, that helped with his sleep. Butter, please. <laughs> yes. And it improved his mathematical abilities. And when he would give talks about this, you know, he was like, this is really great. This really works for me. I prefer to manage my own health in this way. He didn't really trust the medical establishment. 
And he wasn't a kook. He uh, was a professor of psychology, worked on rat, rat psychology. Uh, but he was very much into his own quantification and experimentation. And a cardiologist in one of his talks suggested he might give himself a heart attack. And the, the big irony here was that he started a column at the New York Observer where he would write about his, his life hacking and experiments on a monthly basis, or maybe it was weekly. And his first column was his last column. Oh. It was entitled, Butter Makes Me Smarter. And a couple of days before, he had had a heart attack. Man. So I can't say that eating half a stick of butter gave him a heart attack. He's you know just a single person, but I think it speaks to some of the risks. Like, why eat half a stick of butter so that you're a couple milliseconds faster on this trivial, arbitrary sort of little quiz you set up for yourself? Right. Yeah. So that's very clear, optimizing for the wrong thing. So mm -hmm. you're a little quicker, but your health is suffering. And so that's not a great trade, certainly. So given that, how's your thinking evolved in terms of establishing whether a particular practice seems like a good idea or a bad idea? I don't know if I can say beforehand something is great or something is really a bad idea, but I have some heuristics. And so again, if you're trying to push yourself to that leading edge, uh, I think you need to ask yourself, am I focusing on one thing beyond all others? So there's a fellow by the name of Nick Winter, and he wrote this really nice uh, little self-published book that you can buy on Amazon called Motivation Hacker. And he, he read all the popular literature, the pop science literature on motivation, on habit formation, on curing procrastination. And he thought, well, what happens if I could amplify all this to be absurdly productive? And he used all these psychological techniques and apps and hacks that were available to him. And he was savvy about it. He did end up working 120-hour work weeks as for fun almost. Mm -hmm. um, but he also had to create goals for himself, like to go on so many dates with his then-girlfriend, now-wife, go out to be social with his friends you know, like 10 times a week, make sure he was still doing his push-ups and pull-ups and health regime. Uh, so that works for him. And you can go to a web page. He... he, he dynamically in live time uh, has a web page where he charts his productivity and the hours he has spent coding and he, he plots it against his running average over days, months, and weeks. Uh, but at least he was cognizant of the fact that he had other things that he needed to keep his eye on and he didn't just focus on and fixate on productivity. Well, you know, what's interesting is as you talk about that life and that quantification and striving to sort of beat it and have it at the top. It's interesting because I love spreadsheets for all sorts of things. And I have quantified a number of things in my day that most people, you know, don't bother or would find, you know, excessive or over the top. But as I think about and imagine that scenario, it seems to me a real risk would be just a sense that your, I don't know, your meaning or your value or your purpose or all that matters is that which you are, you know, quantifying, charting, publishing, which can kind of suck you in to some, I think maybe really depressing places. Is that kind of some patterns that you're seeing in your research here? Oh, definitely. So I have the chapters on hacking time, hacking motivation, 
uh, material possessions. And you can almost see a progression of people looking for contentment. So people think, if I can be super efficient, then I will be happy, I will be content. And turns out that's not necessarily the case for a lot of people. They realize I still am not happy. I, you know, climb to the top of my hierarchy at my work. I make a lot of money. I bought a house. And now I have all this stuff and that's making me anxious. So then you can look at the digital minimalists, another wing of life hacking. And they decided, well, why don't I do another experiment? Why don't I get rid of everything except 100 things? So there was the 100 things challenge. And some people did 99 things and some people did 50 things. And, you know, that worked for some people for a time. And some people still uh, live that very minimalist life. But one of the people I spoke to, it's a pseudonym, Rita Holt. Uh, But I had been following her and she, again, had had a breakdown, had a good job, but very stressful ended up on the floor in a pool of tears, as that's how she spoke about it, and quit the job, sold everything except what she could fit in a backpack and traveled the world writing about digital minimalism. And after a year or so, uh, she quit it all. And I found that out because I was checking some of my sources for the book and all her web pages were gone and her ebook mm. was gone and her Twitter account was gone. But fortunately, I still had contact information. And I said, you know, what happened? Where did it all go? And she said, well, everyone was doing the same thing, all shouting about how happy and content they were and how (laughs) awesome this was, but it just started to ring hollow and she got out of it. And so that's the chapter on material possessions. And then there's a chapter on health and relationships and then ultimately meaning. Like when you realize that none of those things will necessarily guarantee you happiness and contentment, when you realize that life even perfectly optimized is still likely to throw you some disappointments and loss. What do you do? And that's the next to the last chapter when people start pulling from stoicism and mindfulness, Zen Buddhism in particular among life hackers. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. So yeah, I can see how that really makes sense in that you're just like, okay, if I could just do a little more, a little more, a little more of efficiency or productivity or reduction of stuff, then I'll arrive. It is like, oh, wait a second. It can't get any more optimal than this. And and it's still not doing it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Bummer of realization. And so, well, uh, that's a big question. Uh, What do you do? Well, one of the the parallels I draw, I found this really interesting in the the meaning hacking chapter, was that people do uh, are very fond of the Zen minimalist sort of aesthetic And mindfulness is really big in Silicon Valley. There's a conference every year called Wisdom 2.0 where they bring in Google and a bunch of tech companies and all the mindfulness gurus. And people pick and choose from various aspects of religions and it tends to be very individualistic. And you'll hear people talking about how, like Tim Ferriss will talk about mindfulness as an efficient operating system for the brain. And uh, there's a fellow who started at Google, he now, he wrote a book and he has a nonprofit called Search Inside Yourself because he started at Google. So he's playing on the search thing. And he wrote about how EQ uh, is great for your engineers and your techies and your employees' emotional intelligence. And the employees know the more EQ have they have, the more money they'll make. And so the, they'll be happier at the companies. And that just seems very crass. And so people get frustrated with that. And again, the the ironic parallel is Siddhartha, the original Buddha, 
uh, started out living a life of extreme luxury. His father was the king, his mother the queen. He was provided with everything a young man could be provided with, money, exotic foods, courtesans. And he woke up one morning and he just said, I am not happy, I am not content. He became a minimalist. He went out, traveled around, taught and learned from a lot of yogis. He became very extreme. He tried to optimize his asceticism, nearly starved himself to death, passed out, was uh, revived by a young girl who fed him some rice milk and realized, huh, maybe I, I, what I need to do is pursue the middle way, the middle path, the path of moderation. Mm-hmm. And so, wow, that's the insight. Maybe being super extreme about optimizing everything is not the solution. Maybe moderation is is good in all things. And that's the neat thing about life hacking as a type of self-help. A lot of the genuine bits of wisdom and insight that people do come to have been around for centuries, if not millennia. But what self-help does is it wraps up those bits of wisdom, those bits of insight into a vocabulary that people in a current moment in a current culture can understand. Mm-hmm. So what life hacking really is, it's a type of self-help for what's been called uh, you know, the geek, the geek class, the engineer, the techies, the creative class, the people who aren't on someone else's clock, but they still have a lot to do. And they have to figure out, well, how in this, in this world of increased demands and expectations on your attention, but also increased distractions, how can you possibly focus? Mm-hmm. And so life hacking as a type of self-help says, here's some lessons that have been around for a while, uh, like the middle path, the middle way, uh, making sure you connect with your family and friends and you don't forget about it, making sure that when you schedule your day, you give yourself time to do meaningful long-term stuff, uh, that you give yourself time to maybe be spiritual or spend time with your friends and relations. And it couches it in contemporary terms. Yeah. Well, I appreciate Joseph. You've also given me a prescription for, you know, a bestseller. Just go ahead and find some ancient wisdom and package it in modern terms. And uh, that seems to be a winning formula. That's what self-help is. It's always being done, actually. Yeah. All right. Well, that gets me all the more motivated to finish off Plutarch's Lives and the other books that are on my shelf that uh, I have it built in meaningful time <laughs> to, mm-hmm. uh, to tackle just yet. So, well, that's really cool. So getting acquainted then or having covered these kind of cautionary bits and getting a broader perspective on what we're really going for, I do want to touch base on a little bit of tactical stuff. You know, what have you discovered have been for many practitioners some pretty excellent habits or approaches or hacks when it comes to time? One of the insights I came to in doing this work, and again, this has been around for a while. There is a theorist, a Nobel Prize winning economist, Schelling, who came up with this idea of egonomics. And decades ago, he said that there's a lot of things that we would like to do, but that we don't do. And the Greeks even spoke of this as akrasia. Uh, we do things that uh, we shouldn't do, and we don't do the things we should do. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I take advantage of is called the Pomodoro technique. And Pomodoro is the Italian word for tomato. And the guy who came up with it just happened to have a kitchen timer in the shape of a tomato. And the idea is that when you have a a long-term task that you want to work on, like I want to write a 
chapter for a book. Getting started writing a chapter of a book is daunting. Uh, It's very hard to motivate yourself. So what you can do is you can say, I'm just going to set this timer for 40 minutes and I'm going to sit down and I'm just going to look at that page uh, in front of me. I'm not going to allow myself to get distracted, but after the 40 minutes, I can take a short break. And that allows you to get over that hump of, oh my gosh, I could never start this big project that I've been worrying about and thinking about. And so that's one of the techniques I love on the cover of my book under the title, there is a little Pomodoro tomato timer. I don't know how many people will get that, but that's what it is. And I also glitched it up a little bit to show there might be a dark side or some excesses. Okay, so the Pomodoro, you are a fan there. And so that is, I believe, 25 minutes is the the amount of time there? I think that's how it was started. I tend to do uh, 45 to 50 minutes for writing. Okay, very good. So that's, you found to be good and workable and helpful in your world. I do. And again, the interesting thing is it's not so much a time management, it's really a self-management tool Uh, because time really is what time is. You can't do a lot with it. The the real challenge is motivating ourselves. And an economist from a couple of decades ago who won a Nobel Prize actually called this egonomics. He proposed a new field of study for ways that we might understand the economics of our own self-regulation, the sort of economy of our desires and wants. Hmm. Yeah, that is fascinating. Can you share perhaps an insight or takeaway or two from that study? Well, what he, what, he didn't do a study. He wrote an essay where he was proposing this sort of study. And some of the examples he used back then was he says, well, people do things to keep themselves from smoking cigarettes or biting their nails, like people would paint some disgusting nail polish Mm -hmm. on their nails so they would taste it. Or if you have poison ivy, you put gloves on your fingers. And so he said, just as in real economics, you see these exchanges and tensions, we grapple with these within ourselves. And interestingly, if we go back even further, the Greeks spoke about this. They had a term for called akrasia. And that was the frustration related to doing things that you shouldn't do and not doing things that you should do. And the classic example for that is Ulysses. He wanted to hear the sirens when he and his sailors were sailing by, but he knew that if everyone heard the sirens, they would be pulled to their death on the rocks. So what did he do? He had himself tied to the mast and could listen to the sirens, had the men put wax in all their ears so they couldn't hear the sirens, And he could enjoy it, but he knew he wouldn't go crazy. And in economics, they call those Ulysses packs, or uh, Ulysses is another name for uh, Odysseus. And what you do is you commit yourself to something that it's not easy to back away from. So earlier I mentioned Nick Winter in his book, The Motivation Hacker, and he's really fond of this app called Beeminder. Now, this would never work for me, but the app, what it does is it asks you to commit a certain amount of money to a task. And if you don't do that task, you forfeit the money. So you might say, I want to work 50 minutes to get started on my chapter today. You set your Pomodoro timer, but what's going to keep you from getting distracted? Well, there are some tools like Freedom that can keep you from going to Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. But you could also set a little goal on Beeminder that says you're going to lose $10 if you fail to satisfy your Ulysses pack, your commitment. Yeah. And so I guess then you just have to be honest. (laughs) 
you do. That's, you go back in there and say, I did or did not do that thing. That's the question. Like, well, why would anyone uh, not just lie and not lose <laughs> the money? But the thing that I encountered when I spoke to users of this application is that one, they have this app very much integrated into their lives and their quantifications. So they really want good, accurate data for like how many words they wrote in a day or how many Pomodoros they did or whatever it is that they're trying to do. And they don't like to have their data distorted and that's helping them manage their data. And then two, they really appreciate the service. And so they're happy. Like if you have a habit you really want to create, spending 10 and then if you fail 20, you know, it doubles. Uh, spending that amount of money is worth it to you. And they very cleverly designed the app such that you end up paying the least money that's still worth what that task is worth to you. Wow. How do you arrive at such a figure? They've done some research. It's um, the, the company is a joint effort of two folks, Bethany Soul, who has a graduate degree in computer science, and Danny Reeves, who has a PhD in economics and incentive systems. And they have applied that economic quantified approach to the whole of their lives. I talk about their marriage in the chapter on hacking relationships. And they bid for things in their relationship, like who's going to take out the trash tonight? But one person might say, well, I would give you $2. And the other person will say, well, I would give you $3. And so the person will be like, okay, I'll take the $3. And for them, from an economic point of view, it's very efficient because the person who least wanted to do it didn't have to do it. And the person who got the most value of it did it. Mm -hmm. So they have a very uh, unusual but interesting approach to life. Right. And, and I guess, again, you need to be honest, like, oh boy, I'd give you $500. <laughs> it's like yeah, you, Trump, 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 trumping them each time with a huge sum. But uh, I guess, you know, that's part of the marriage game is, you know, being honest and uh, forthright and not trying to game the system there. Yeah. And they do exchange the money. Uh, they do have a, a hack on top of that. So they don't exchange every single interaction they have. They, they only record and exchange money every 10 of these interactions, but then they multiply that interaction by 10. So if it was $3 to take out the trash to be worth $30. And it's very unusual. And they received, you know, some criticism out there on the web. Uh, but unlike some of the other excesses and unsavory hacking, at least they're trying to be fair. At least it's very explicit. They call it, you know, they are respecting one another's utility curves. They're not being exploitative. And I think you can find that in so, some other instances of life hacking. Mm -hmm. Well, respecting each other's utility curves sure sounds romantic. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes, that's what some of the folks said. Like, this doesn't sound like a real relationship. And it's definitely unusual, but it works for them. And when I tried to apply those distinctions of is this ethical or not, it seems, it seems above board. Oh, certainly. And I've sort of been a little cheeky with the actual words phonetically you don't sound romantic. But the concept, I think really is in terms of being thoughtful about each other's needs and also somehow balancing your own stuff. And, and it reminds me back in the day when I had three roommates and then we had four rooms in the apartment that were all a little bit different in terms of their pros and cons with their space and did they have their own bathroom, et cetera. And it's like, well, okay, how are we going to divide up this rent? And that was the game we played. It's like, okay, you'd like the big room. Gotcha. And just how much would you be willing to pay in rent for that big room? And so by iteratively going through this, 
it worked out just right. You know, it turns out I was a bit more frugal and I had the small room with the small rent <laughs> and the, the lawyer and the doctor, you know, they were living larger and it was good and fine that way. Yes, it can be efficient. Of course, there are some downsides and they've had to think about that in the context of their relationship. So, you know, she's the only one that could actually be pregnant and have the kids. So right. what is the value? And so, for example, uh, one of them was in school while the other person was working. And so they had to figure out, like, what is the value of these things? Their their first daughter's name was Fair, and they actually bid between themselves on naming the kid in Fair One, and it went for a couple thousand dollars between them. And again, it's very unusual, but at least for them, those things weren't taken for granted. I think that's preferable to a relationship where you just right. assume oh, you're going to get pregnant and you're going to stay home with the kids and I'll be earning the money and have plenty, plenty of spending money. Mm-hmm. Well said, well said. Well, tell me any final thoughts about life hacking, great practices, how professionals might use some of this wisdom to accelerate their own ends? I would recommend people experiment with various things, but they need to ask themselves two questions. Well, more than two questions, but let's focus with two questions. When you go out and you buy a bit of self-help, whether about its productivity or minimizing and getting out of clutter, you have to think about, well, compared to what? Is this technique going to be cost-effective? Is it likely to be efficacious? And are there any side effects or harms? And I think if you're attracted to something and you can ask yourself those questions, and all of that seems to bear out, I think it's worthwhile trying while you're also keeping yourself in check with respect to some of the uh, excesses that fall from optimization. Mm -hmm. Well summarized, thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Sure. So one of my favorite books on time management, and again, that's a bit of a misnomer because it's really about managing ourselves, was Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And that was real popular back in the 80s and even the 90s, but now other books like Ferris's 4-Hour Workweek, I think more people are probably familiar with. But he had this great quote, the key is not to prioritize what's on your schedule, but to schedule your priorities. And that's because I think someone was telling me like Elon Musk has a calendar where he schedules every five minutes of his day. (laughs) And I think that would drive most people nuts. That would not be effective for most people. And what Covey is suggesting instead is if you do want to prioritize having time to think about the long term, the things that are of high value to you, things in your personal life that you want to make sure that there's room for, schedule your priorities. You know, Don't fixate on your calendar and making sure that every five minute chunk of your calendar is full. Hmm. Thank you. And how about a favorite study or bit of research? This might not be appropriate because I know you're looking for uh, probably a study that tells you how to be more effective. But there's there's a study I really like in terms of critical thinking, and it's a follow-up to the marshmallow study. Pete, have you ever heard of the marshmallow study? Oh, right. Uh, Walter Michel. It's a fave. Did he do this one or was someone else building off that work? The follow-up was in 2012. Let's hear it. So the original one uh, has been made use of a lot by people who are into like crit and motivation, and sticking to it. And this study from decades ago was done by placing a marshmallow in front of a child. And they'd say to the kid, you could have this marshmallow now, 
Or if you wait and I go look for more marshmallows and I come back in 10 minutes and you haven't eaten the marshmallow, you can have two marshmallows. And so in the study, they looked at the kids who ate the marshmallows immediately and they looked at the kids who could persevere and hold off and be patient and wait for that second marshmallow. And then the interesting things is they tracked some of the uh, indicators of those people's lives as they moved through their, their lives. And so how did they do in school? Like what were their SAT scores? Uh, did they get a good job? Did they end up buying a house? You know, all those sort of things Did they end up in a good relationship. And they found a very strong correlation between the people who were able to persevere and be patient and those outcomes from later on in life, the good outcomes. And for many decades, people then thought, well, if you want to raise the kids or if you want to do well in your life, you really need to learn how to persevere. And the slight downside was that sometimes it led to the implication that if you ended up in life in a place where you didn't really want to be or if people fared poorly in life, it was their own fault because they didn't have enough grit. Mm-hmm. And we just need to teach kids to have more grit. Well, the study from 2012 added a step before the marshmallow. And the proctors of the study would do something with crayons. Before the marshmallow step, they'd bring out some dumpy crayons, half-used crayons, not a lot of shades of color. And they'd tell the kids, here's some crayons if you'd like to color in this book here. But I have a better brand new set of crayons available if you're willing to wait. And they did the same thing. They said, would you, would you be willing to wait? And I'll bring you back a nicer set of crayons. They went off and then the, the proctors came back and did one of two things. They said, oh, I forgot they're really nice crayons. I'm so sorry. Or they gave them the good crayons. And so the proctors were unreliable or reliable. Then they did the marshmallow study. And it turns out that when the kids had been exposed to an unreliable proctor, they did not get the nice new crayons they ate that marshmallow right away. Yeah. Now that liar is not going to come back with two marshmallows. Yes, exactly right. <laughs> and so this is really nice evidence that it wasn't necessarily the kids' grit and perseverance. Maybe these kids had a lot of siblings. And if you have a lot of brothers and sisters, you know you can't leave that marshmallow sitting there. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they grew up in an impoverished family. And maybe those were the things that correlated with later life outcomes rather than in any essentialist kind of notion of grit and internal uh, stick it to That is clever. Yeah. So I really like that study because I think it, again, it's great for critical thinking. I use it with my students a lot. And it also is a bit of a caution with respect to some of the self-help advice we get, which is very individualistic, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And how about a favorite book? I should have mentioned this earlier, but there's a great book on stoicism. Uh, when you were asking about that, by William Irvine called A Guide to the Good Life, The Ancient Art of Stoic Joy. And it really is, as you suggested, an up-to-date version of the ancient Stoic philosophy. And so he talks about you know, how it emerged and some of the differences between the Greek and the Roman. But the important thing is, is he says, this is practical philosophy, which isn't taught in universities anymore. Right you know, now, it's very formal and kind of mm-hmm. a lot of history and theory. But philosophy was supposed to be practical. It was supposed to give you some suggestions to provide guidance on how to live a good life. And I find Irving's book, A Guide to the Good Life, is is full of really wonderful insights that are very applicable to the the current day, to our immediate lives. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite tool so that it helps you be awesome at your job? 
Well, one of the things that's just built into my personality, though I think it can also be developed, is I document everything. Uh, I've been blogging forever, microblogging forever. I have uh, a mind map called Freeplane that I really like to use. So all my reading notes go into Freeplane. I'm really fond of this application called ZimWiki. It's a personal wiki. So you can just easily create pages and tasks and two dates. Maybe if people are familiar with Evernote, it's kind of like that. But I like ZimWiki a lot more. And so whenever, I don't have a very good memory. So whenever I need to remind myself or something or think about last time I had to submit my expenses because we use this awful software, it might work. (laughs) Uh, What were the steps that I went through to make it work? And I have it all documented there. So I really love those those sort of tools. Mm, Cool. And a favorite habit? Um, I ask myself, would I be a happier person in the future if I did the thing that I'm waffling about doing. <laughs> so maybe it's, you know, brushing my teeth or going to meditation or whatever it might be. I try to think about my future self and whether he would be content and proud of the present self. That is excellent. Thank you. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with uh, readers or listeners? This idea that self-optimizing can be suboptimal. I, I wrote a piece for The Guardian and that, that number of like a colleague just emailed me uh, earlier today saying, oh, she really loved that piece and she wants to use it in her course. Lovely. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Uh, You can go to my website, regal.org, and I'm also JM Regal on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? That's a little bit difficulty because then I would be setting myself up as a sort of self-help guru, which I'm being a little (laughs) bit critical of. Um, But I think people should be mindful of not only what they are doing, but why they are doing it. Mm -hmm. Well, Joseph, thank you so much. This has been a whole lot of fun. I wish you all the best with your life hacking and optimally optimizing and falling into suboptimality. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Pete. I was struck by Joseph's story about the person who was eating the butter and saw a gain in one area in terms of math problems, but a real loss in terms of his health and his very life. And I think that's dramatic and instructive. And he and his family are my thoughts and prayers. And one lesson that I've really taken away from that is just to watch out. Indeed, what are you optimizing for? And are you overlooking something? And be careful with that. Sometimes I find that I love optimizing stuff my consulting nature gets hold of me. And sometimes it's sort of like, just like whatever's in front of me, I will just sort of start thinking, what's the best possible way I could do this? And I'll go into all this thought and it's like, you know, wait a minute, is this even worth optimizing? Is this a problem worth solving? Or should I just maybe see if I can have someone else handle it or just let it be? And it's fine to leave it suboptimal because I'm optimizing a bigger picture. So great reminders from Joseph. Again, the show notes, the transcripts, the links to items we've referenced or over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F436. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest. It's Michael Unger. And Michael is an expert in the world of resilience. He will share how to build that up and build your environment to be all the more able to handle challenges that show up in work and elsewhere. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. 
Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.